Just imagine if no one had told Lori that her sweet potatoes were on fire. Would that have been a very loving thing to do? No, right? It would not have been a very loving thing to do. And so sometimes the truth may hurt, but it still needs to be told, doesn't it? And um, some of what we're going to say today will potentially offend those that are part of the Catholic system, but we don't mean to offend people. It's not about people. It is about a system that is leading in a wrong direction, a system that is on fire, shall we say, and um, needs to be exposed for what it is. So that is my job today or part of it. But before I go there, I have this picture of quercetin behind me. What I don't have is my clicker anywhere, but that's okay. I've only got a few slides today. But as you can see, this is a quercetin and zinc combination. And I was, we were trying to get you a Neil Nedley video on quercetin. We were not able to find it, uh, David or myself. I know I've watched it, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So, so I'm going to speak a little bit about it. But first, vitamin D, which we talked about here recently also. I saw a headline on the internet saying vitamin D, the nutrient gaining the most traction among scientists studying SARS-CoV-2 is vitamin D. It's found in some foods, but we gave you the website and you need to, if if some of you weren't here, healthfortoday.org. That is Dr. I almost said Ralph Benedict, (laughs) Dr. Dennis Benedict's website, and it's very good. It's got Dr. Wes Youngberg's suggestions on maintenance levels and infection levels of many things, including vitamin D, but I I suggest you go there, healthfortoday.org. But uh, that's what this said about vitamin D, and so it's very important. But then moving on to quercetin. Quercetin is also spoken about on that same website, healthfortoday.org. And I'm going to give you just the conclusion from a randomized study that was done with quercetin, actually with quercetin and vitamin C. What quercetin does is it opens up the cell, allowing the bioavailability of of either vitamin C or zinc to be much better assimilated into the system. That's what quercetin does. So you're just ramping up your, your vitamin D, uh, sorry, vitamin C and zinc. It works for both. But this, uh, so this supplement, I just picked a picture of a supplement. This is not the one I take, but um, it says healthy immune function, superior absorption and retention of zinc and supports respiratory health. This study is on quercetin and vitamin C. And again, I'm just gonna read the conclusion to you. Quercetin displays a broad range of antiviral properties which can interfere at multiple steps of pathogen virulence. Virus entry, so when it's entering the cell, virus replication, protein assembly, and that these 
Therapeutic effects can be augmented by the co-administration of vitamin C. So take vitamin C and quercetin together. I suggest take zinc together also, take them all. Um, who was it that told me that as you can tell the age of a person by the amount of pills they take in the morning? I think I remember, but I won't mention any names here. Anyway, uh, may be true, but all minor vitamins, so I just want you to know that. But, but these, are, these are some good ones, all right? Zinc, vitamin C, and quercetin together. Vitamin D also. Liquid is the best. So going on, furthermore, due to the lack of severe side effects and low costs, we strongly suggest the combination, sorry, the combined administration of these two compounds for both the prophylaxis and early treatment of respiratory tract infection, especially including COVID-19 patients. So tip for today, health tip for today, quercetin and vitamin C and zinc, take them together. Um, and of course, allow God to uh, take care of your body, amen? We've looked at New Start many times, and what a faithful God we have today, amen? We have been at this since, when did we come back to church? Anyone remember? Is it March? Something like that. Anyway, we had the outdoor communion. That was special. Uh, that was cold, but it was special. It was way worth it. Um, but we've been at this, and God has been so faithful to take care of us, Amen? right here in this sanctuary, right on this spot of ground where we know because we've been told that angels walked right here. And so what a blessing, what a God we serve. It's in John 17, 11. I claim that for you every day. And that is guard them, keep them. And he's done such a wonderful job, not because I'm special, but because he's special and because he hears prayer, Amen. And he has been so faithful to guard us and keep us all the while. What has been called by some the Pope's Davos, a reference to the annual World Economic Forum of Global Leaders, but substituting the world's business elite with aspiring economists and entrepreneurs all under the age of 35. Sounds great. What I'm speaking of is Economy de Francesco. So the economy of Pope Francis. Now you might be scratching your head saying, wait a minute, the Pope, isn't he a religious guy? What is he doing crafting a worldwide economy? I mean, what, what's his role in that? Well, it's a very good question. Unless you look at the Bible and you see that the last movements and the last beast power is one that is multifaceted, including economic portions, right? There is this beast where not only the kings, the political world follows, but also the merchants of the earth. And so that is exactly the direction we're going. This he did just Several weeks ago, he did parts of it some months ago, but delayed it and came out with his world um, idea of an economy moving forward 
past the COVID situation. And so he outlines what a post-COVID world economy, he doesn't deal with individual nations, but the whole world should look like going forward. There were many celebrities there and many well-known for their controversial positions on globalism, abortion, population control, anti-capitalist economics, climate change, and open borders. So that kind of gives you the feel of crowd that was there. And this was no small deal. It was broadcast live to 120 countries with remarkable technical deployment, which included simultaneous translation into various languages. The summit kicked off with an interesting fellow named Jeffrey Sachs. If you remember when we talked about Davos, you might remember that name. He's the one that said if President Trump were to win in 2020, it would be a very dangerous world, according to his quote. He's been a featured speaker in at least six Vatican conferences, lecturing on topics from education to ethics. He was considered a key figure behind the scenes of this event. He's a population control advocate and let's just say he's a never-Trumper, to be sure. Here he was, serving as a mentor for young change-makers to create a new world economy, along, of course, with the new world order. They all go together. Universal living wage, which, of course, means everybody's broke, except for a few who are not part of the whole thing. The one percenters, you could call them, in just a little different way of looking at it. Sachs said he'd use his role as a mentor, and listen to this, I quote, to emphasize the great beauty and wisdom of the church's social teachings. And this isn't just any church. This, of course, is the Roman Catholic Church. And not just the church's teachings, but of St. Francis' teachings and actions hmm, in guiding us to the integral development we seek. Sachs wrote a book in 2017, Building the New American Economy. Smart, fair, and sustainable. The foreword was written by Bernie Sanders. So I'm just giving you a flavor of where people are coming from. You might say, well, this has to do with politics. And I will say, yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> and so does the beast power in Revelation 12, 13. There's bits of it in 16 and 17 and 18. So, it, and it doesn't, this doesn't have to do with any political persuasion per se, but just in general, politics, because that's where we're at, so I don't apologize for that. Another one of the speakers, Dr. Shiva, listen to this, argued that farmland should not be private property. No private individual should own farmland. After all, she described them as rapists, raping the earth. Interesting. Like the Pope, she also pretty much deifies 
Mother Earth. Another economist from Bangladesh said this, like others had said from the Vatican, said that the pandemic has stopped the machine and allowed an opportunity to examine whether humanity wants to change course. Well, I think it's even more serious than that, um, allowing an opportunity. I don't think that's <laughs> where some would want to go with it. In a short video message Saturday, Francis was straightforward, saying this, we need change, we want change, and we seek change. He stressed the urgent need for a different economic narrative. He called the current system structurally imbalanced and said it was not enough to increase wealth and distribute it more fairly. That's not enough. Trust in philanthropy to fill the gaps or rely on new technology to make the earth a better place. None of that is enough. Rather, there is a need, and I quote, to recover a sense of the common good. Now that all sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Unless you are reading between the lines and know the rest of the story. Some of the young entrepreneurs that were there said that this isn't just something utopian for us. We feel that our movement is prophetic. I thought that was interesting. Here's a quote. We are committed to living the best years of our lives so that the economy of Francesco can increasingly bring salt and leaven to everyone's economy. Interesting. Francesco, the papacy as salt and leaven to the world. Part of a prophetic movement the world will wonder after the beast. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, this morning we need your spirit to especially stir our pure minds. Stir us, Lord, to action. Give us clarity of understanding. Give us conviction of your spirit. Give us courage to follow where you say go because you have gone before, and we go in your strength and your power. We thank you for blessing. Take the human instrument out of the way now, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, well, you can turn to Genesis chapter 11, and have I got a story for you, and it's straight from the Bible. And have you ever had those, I know you have, those aha moments, right? Like you're reading through and you're like, you've read this a hundred times. And it's like, what? I never saw the connection here. So we're going to look at that in Genesis, kind of the last part of 10, but mostly 11. We're going to look at Nimrod and we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. But as the slide shows, we believe that the sands in the hourglass of time have nearly run out. Again, as many of you have talked to me and we've kind of gotten our thoughts together, we thought that COVID would be just sort of a snippet thing that would, you know, it would last for a while and then there'd be a stop and then sort of a time of 
normality, new normality maybe. And then uh, things would get even worse. And as some of you have said to me recently, I'm not so sure that there's going to be that time of normality or that it's going to be very long. And so we believe that the Lord is coming very soon. And that's super exciting. Amen? For those that have gone to the grave, the next face they will see is Jesus. What could be better than that? We looked a little bit about the great reset and Davos in the last couple of weeks. This is the Time Magazine article. They called the Davos program the Green New Deal on steroids. So you get an idea of what we're talking about. We've talked about the two great principles of civil and religious liberty. And you know, I heard someone recently say, you know, all the rights that we have are found here in this book. I think you could, I think I could go along with that in some ways because I think it all goes back there, but we have religious liberty and we have civil liberty, right? Right now what's happening is primarily affecting our civil liberty. But how do you really, how do you really separate them? Amen, they're kind of very much connected. And if this is a dress rehearsal, a dry run, uh, then we know what is coming. How is it with you in your life? How are you responding? How are you reacting to what's going on in the world around you? As we see our liberties being taken away left and right. I don't know who could come up with an idea that only one extra person can be at your Thanksgiving dinner. Um, it makes me wonder, is there someone sitting in a back room and it's like, okay, we got them to do this, now let's just see if we can have them not have their family come home for Thanksgiving. And it worked to uh, <laughs> an amazing degree. Um, we have given up our rights so easily. We've just said, bye-bye rights. It's just amazing to me, and, and I, I'm putting myself in there too, but... Um, Lord, help us to be firm with what God has given us, amen? We have rights, we have civil liberty, and we have religious liberty. And those are precious, precious things that we should not just give away. Obviously, we should always be tactful and kind in our uh, presenting ourselves, but God has given us these rights. He set up this country with the civil rights, and we have the religious rights also. So may God continue to lead you in that world we live in. This was another quote by the papacy. He says, we require a new and universal solidarity. Doomsday predictions can no longer be met with irony or disdain. And then this next sentence is interesting. Enforceable international agreements are urgently needed. Code for National Sunday Law. We know where this is going. And it's amazing to me. We've been preaching this. We've been seeing this. We've been saying this for years. And now it's right in front of us. And I praise the Lord. Amen? Praise the Lord for his truth. Praise the Lord for the everlasting gospel which he has given us. 
And we can't look at the beast without looking at the everlasting gospel because there are three angels' messages. The everlasting gospel, then Babylon has fallen, then the results really of that fall. But we looked at the fact that the everlasting gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed by Scripture alone. Come on and say amen if that's good news. We can't do it ourselves. But the papacy, to counter the Reformation, we stand on the shoulders of the greats of the Reformation. But the papacy, in contrast, says... Council of Trent, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be what? Anathema, right? Let him be damned. So you see the two sides here. <laughs> we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, but that is not what the false system puts forward. This will be my fourth week in a row, Wes, as uh, <laughs> you've... Uh, just coming here, but I, this statement I now read for four weeks in a row. Because look at this introduction to it, the first part of it. There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all. When you read all that, you're like, what, what's coming next? What is it that is going to be said? It, more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? That's the only way it can happen. And true faith works by love and purifies the soul. We have a wonderful creator. Amen? We have a wonderful Redeemer, the Creator. We rest in His perfect and finished work of creation. Amen? At the end of creation, He said, it is finished. It was finished. It was perfect. It was very good. We have a Redeemer. Amen? And we rest in the perfect and finished work of redemption on the cross. He said what? It is finished. And it was have you accepted his finished work and allowed it to work in your life? If you throw out creation, creation and redemption are one. We looked at that last week from Colossians chapter one. Many other verses. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. But that's talking about being redeemed, isn't it? So creation and redemption are one. You throw out creation you throw out redemption, you throw out creation and redemption, you throw out the sign of both of them, which is what? The Holy Sabbath, right? And that's what we see happening in Mass, and we'll see it even more. But we'll see many turning to the Lord as creator and redeemer, and they'll be turning towards his Sabbath. Many don't know, many have not had it presented as it needs to be. And may God help us to do that very thing. And so do we worship the creator or do we worship the beast today? That is the question. Babylon is built, and now we're to Genesis 11. Babylon is built on exalting self, unbelief, and salvation by works. Now, you and I have read, we've read this in Genesis 11, and I always thought, okay, 
They're building this tower out of unbelief because what had God just done? He had just made a covenant that he would never destroy the world with a flood again, right? The whole world. And not only did he do the covenant, but then he did a kind of a, a, a sign or a token of the covenant, right? Remember what that was? The rainbow, right? So not only, I mean, his words should have been good enough, but he said, I'll give him something extra. I'll give him a rainbow to make sure that they know what I'm gonna do, what I'm, what I'm not gonna do. And so out of unbelief, the folk there at, in Babel decide to build this tower. And I always thought, okay, that's out of unbelief because he just promised and they're saying, well, we don't, we're not sure, so we better do this anyway. It's works, right? They wanna be saved by their works. I saw that aspect. But what I'm gonna show you now, I didn't see at all. And that is the political motivation behind this. Oh, stay with me as we go. The call then was the same as the call now. It was a political power grab right here in front of me. A thrust for absolute authority, the desire for a one world order. And the appeal, hey, what would work better than self-preservation? Either we do this or we die. And that's what we're hearing today. Care for our common home. It's good for everyone, they say, while underneath lurks the desire for self-exaltation and self-aggrandizement. We're in Genesis. Look at chapter 10 and verse 8, because this sets the context for chapter 11. And Cush begot, what's the man's name? Come on, y'all. 10 verse 8. And Cush begot who? Nimrod. There you go. And he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Or some translations put it, he was the first mighty one on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, whereof it is said, even Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So this is what I was missing. Nimrod did not want them to separate. He had a one world order. He had everybody right there. Same language, all together. And he could really be this leader of the whole world. Well, God would change that plan, right? But that's, that's what I didn't see. Let's look at this now, chapter 11. The whole earth was of one language and one speech. Unity isn't always good, is it? And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said one to another. And I just wonder if maybe Nimrod was a key spokesperson. Go, let us make brick, burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower who may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name. So it's all about self and pride. We see that in Isaiah 14. That's the essence of Babylon, right? Um, on, 
on the slide there, you have Daniel 4. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power, the honor of my majesty. It's all about self and building the foundation of Babylon. But look what he says next, because I would have said then at the end, I would have said, lest we be swallowed up by another flood, right? That's not what he says. He says this, or it says this. Lest we be what? Scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So that was the issue, not being scattered abroad. He wanted that one world order, which he already had, but he didn't want to lose it. Of course, God um, loves independence. This is, you could say this is a curse, this separation of the different ones, but in another way, it was a blessing because otherwise Nimrod would have had the one world order that he was looking for. And so this was a political move on the part of Nimrod. I want to read you just a few comments on this before we keep moving. Let us make us a name which some render a sign and suppose it to be a signal set on top of the tower which served as a beacon. Did you ever think of it by, as that? I didn't. By the sight of which they might be preserved if they're straying in the open plains or to help them return if they had strayed. Others take it to be an idol proposed to be set on top of the tower. But listen to this one. Or paraphrasing the words, let us build in the midst of it a temple of worship on the top of it. And let us put a sword into the idol's hand. That's what Targums of Jonathan said. But listen to this last one. This is the conjecture, as we would say, of Dr. Tennyson in his book of idolatry, that this tower was consecrated by the builders of it to the sun. After all, the sun is what dried up all this water. So let's put these pieces together before we move on. Nimrod, a one-world leader, probably using fear. Hey, we don't want that flood to come again. We better do something. Appealing to the desire for self-preservation. We've got to do this or we're going to die. Building a monument from the foundation of pride, unbelief, and salvation by works. A system of confusion and error, Babylon is. And let us have a sign up on the top of the tower and let everyone know that this is dedicated to the sun. Let him who hears make the parallels for themselves. Amen? A last one world power. A one world order. A one economy on the way and its sign on top of the tower is in honor to the sun very interesting well we go on with some other snapshots of babylon and there are so many babylon if you do a search you'll probably i think i found 250 different references to babylon there's a whole lot. Some of their gods were as follows. If you go with me to 2 Kings now, 17, and we shall see how many of these we are able to get through. 
2 Kings 17, Israel's going from bad to worse. 1712, they served idols, whereof the Lord God had said to him, you shall not do this thing. We can be thankful for our brothers and sisters from Islam who were brought up to swing Christianity away from idols. Good for them. Turn ye from your evil ways and keep the commandments. I'm in chapter 17, verse 13. But the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam in which he did and departed from them. And so now they're in captivity. Verse 29, every nation made gods of their own. And so everybody bring your favorite gods, bring your favorite idols. What did Babylon bring? Well, verse 30 tells us, and the men of Babylon made Sukoth Binoth. This is most likely the wife of Merodach, and this is clearly a symbol of impurity or passionate unfaithfulness or fornication. Do you see the parallels? This is exactly what the Bible in the New Testament Revelation says about Babylon, that she would make all nations drink of the wine, her intoxicating um, uh, wine and filled with passionate unfaithfulness and abominations. Go with me now to Isaiah chapter 14, a text you should be somewhat familiar with. It's one we go to fairly often, along with Ezekiel 28, to show the fall of Lucifer from heaven. But this also, Isaiah 14, is in the context of a lament for Babylon. By the way, when we speak of Babylon, we're speaking of something symbolic. We're not speaking of the place in the Middle East. There may be things go on in the Middle East, but this, what we're speaking of, is a spiritual representation of what is to come. And we'll get to Revelation 12 here in a bit, but we've got a lot of Old Testament stuff to look at. Verse 4 says, Thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how has he oppressed, how has the oppressor ceased? The golden city, as they called it, ceased. Down to verse 12, actually verse 11, the pomp, thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars. That is, I will put myself above creation. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. Very interesting, that word in the Hebrew is maybe not so much a fixed place like a congregation so much as it is speaking of a fixed time which gives this a whole nother shade of meaning i will also sit upon the mount of the congregation or fixed times will be in my hands lucifer says i'm above the stars above creation desirous of worship 
In the sides of the north, I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. Verse 14, I will be like the most high. And that verse, if your Bible mind is thinking, may lead you, and we won't go there, but to 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, the one who shows himself that he is God sitting in the temple of God. Go now, go with me now to Isaiah 21, and we're just surveying this subject of Babylon and the fall of Babylon. Isaiah 21, verse 1, Babylon is spoken of as the desert by the sea. Verse 6 and onward, the Bible's told to go and set a watchman and let him tell us what he sees. When he sees chariots, verse 7, when he sees chariots with pairs of horses, he needs to be alert. But nothing's really happening, says the watchman, until, verse 9, and behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen or pairs. That's exactly what he's supposed to look for. And said, he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. God says something once, it's important. When he says it twice, it's a special meaning, right? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods, he has broken unto the ground. So we see this fall of Babylon connected with idolatry, with an image, an image to the beast. Again, this is revelation imagery, isn't it? Go to to Isaiah 47. As we look, we won't have, what we won't have time to do today is to get through some very good texts in Jeremiah. We're not even going to Daniel, of all things, to look at Babylon. But I will say this, I think that if Babylon had a process of re-education, which it did, if you look in the book of Daniel, I wonder if the last day Babylon would want to re-educate people. Just something to think about. Isaiah 47, speaking of the daughter of Babylon or Babylon and its family, shall we say. And verse 5, Sit thou silent and get thee into the darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the lady of kingdoms, or the mistress of kingdoms. And we see in Revelation 17, a harlot. So all this imagery in Revelation comes from the Old Testament, what we're reading now. Verse 7, and thou said, I shall be a lady forever. I shall be a mistress forever. I have all these partners. Well, later God would say, no, you will have no partners and no children I shall, verse 8, I shall, last part, I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children, but these two things shall come to you in one day, in a moment, the loss of children and widowhood. Verse 10 says what Babylon trusted in, trusted in her wickedness. But look at verse 12 and onward, because this is part of this threefold union, right? Spiritualism entering in to Babylon, entering into the church because it's a spiritual thing, right? I 
won't say where I was um, or what phone call I was on, but recently I heard someone pretty much bragging um, or they weren't lamenting it, let's put it this way, that God had spoken to this Adventist pastor through tongue speaking. And then one of the other people on the phone call said, yeah, you know, God's, you know, the Holy Spirit will come to us in different ways. He doesn't speak to everybody the same. And I'm thinking, yeah, but <laughs> he's not going to come like that. That's another spirit coming in. And that will come into the church. It already has. And this is part of Babylon. This is something you're going to see more and more and more coming in through the church. And, of course, Babylon is representative of the papacy. It's actually three different um, entities together. We looked at that previously. Revelation 13, it was a dragon, a sea beast, and a land beast. Chapter 17, there were kings, a harlot, and daughters. And that harlot, or sea beast, of course, is the papacy. The other entities we will get to uh, here in a minute. But in 47, verse 12 and onward, this is part of the reason for the fall of Babylon. Stand now with thine enchantments and with thy multitude of thy sorceries. And we know that the papacy is right there with this, right? There's all kinds of saints that they worship. And Maryism is way out there. Mary being a co-redeemer. Sorry, but Mary was a humble person on earth, a very blessed person with a very blessed position, but she's not anybody's savior. Amen? And so we see here enchantments, sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. If so, thou be able to profit. If so, be thou mayest prevail. In other words, if, if, if those things can help you, go for it. Realizing, of course, that they can't. Verse 13, you, in fact, you yourself are wearied in the multitude of your counselors. You've got so many, you don't even, I mean, you're even wearied by it. Let now your astrologers, your stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. And of course, they can't save them from these things. Well, in chapter 48, there's something very interesting about the fall of Babylon or the call to come out of Babylon. Have you ever seen that as a positive thing? as an exciting thing, as a joyful thing? Well, that's what it is in chapter 48. And I want you to go there. <clears throat> Look at verse 20 and onward of Isaiah 48. Now, of course, the imagery here is God's people are captive in Babylon and they're to come out of Babylon. And so, of course, there's joy. You've been redeemed, right? You've been set free. Come out. Do it with joy. But all the while that God is calling people out of Babylon, verse 10 says that we are tried in a furnace of affliction. So don't count it a strange thing when affliction comes because that is exactly the way things will happen. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. 
I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Affliction will come, and so hold on to God and to his great love and to his gospel. He knows best, and he knows how to refine us. And if it's through affliction, may affliction come. Verse 20, I'm looking at now. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, with a voice of singing declare ye. Tell this, utter to the Tell this, utter it even to the ends of the earth. Say ye, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So what do we see there breaking it down? He says, go, leave. This world is not your home. Publish God's works to all nations. You've been redeemed. Your captivity is ended. Flee from Babylon. Now we know that we are not per se in this system of Babylon. We're not part of this system. But could it be that there's a little bit of Babylon and that this church is not Babylon? Let me just be very clear. But could it be that there's a little bit of Babylon in us that God needs to refine and refine out? Oh, Lord, how about you? I, I say take it. Raise your hand if you want him to take it. Take that Babylon right on out of me, Lord, if there's anything there. Amen. Amen. Well, like I say, Jeremiah 50 and 51 is so replete with the references to Babylon. That can be your homework because there's just way too much there. But I do want to share with you one verse, 51 verse 9. This is God's care. This is God's love for the lost, for Babylon, for systems that are erroneous, for people that are in these systems. Of course he loves, but he loves all of them. Verse 9, Jeremiah 51, verse 9 says, we applied healing to Babylon. I believe that's the first angel's message, the everlasting gospel. We applied the gospel, we applied healing to Babylon, but she was not healed. So God loves Babylon, amen? and trying to heal Babylon, but she would not be healed. All right, with that said, go to Revelation chapter 12 <clears throat> as we close today. And, you know, I don't feel bad. I, I was looking at some of Mark Finley's work. I think he did 13 sermons on the three angels' messages, so I don't feel too bad about <laughs> four. Um, I certainly could have gone longer. But as we see in, well, Revelation 12, we have Babylon portrayed as a political force there, as a dragon. And then in verse, in chapter 14, we have those three angels' messages. Verse 8, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. We've looked at the background of that from the Old Testament. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication or her passionate unfaithfulness. There's only going to be two groups of people in the last days, and they'll both be passionate. One will be passionate, unfaithful, one will be passionately faithful. And then the results the results are forever. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. I need to do verse 9 first. Third angel followed, saying, With a loud voice, 
Only the second angel does not have a loud voice. The third does, though. If any worship the beast and his image. So there's two things to worship and one thing to receive. And receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is trying to take away sin now, right? Because when we're in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, we can't have sin in direct presence of them. So God is wanting to take that away now. And the smoke of their torment, again, this is speaking of irreversible results, ascends up forever and ever. They have no rest. And oh, there was a rest giver all the time saying, come unto me, you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But they would not. No rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, whoever receive the mark of his name. And then verse 12, very key. Here is the patience of the saints or the patient endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep two things. They keep the commandments of God. And what else do they keep? The faith of Jesus. Now, what would a church look like Oh, I wish I could share those with you, but I can't right now. So God will have a people who will keep the commandments of God and keep the faith of Jesus. Just a brief overview on this faith of Jesus. This is not faith in Jesus. Now, there, there is such a thing as that, but this is the faith of Jesus. And Many versions don't get it right in most of the Bible. The King James actually is one, probably the only one that does. Galatians 2, 16 through 20 is another key passage with the faith of Jesus. So this is Jesus' faith. So just quickly, when Jesus lived on earth, he was fully God and fully man, but he never used his God part to help him with his daily life, right? With his struggle against sin. So the way he won the battle against sin was the same way we do, which is through what? Through faith, right? Through faith. But what Jesus did is he did it perfectly, right? He did it perfectly. He never sinned, right? And he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So he exercised, he developed this perfect faith. And now, he says, I want to give you my faith. Amen? The perfect article. And so salvation is from faith to faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17 tells us. So we see this perfect faithfulness of God and the perfect life of Jesus. That's what he wants us to accept. Now, what if a church did that? Accepted him and accepted this, what would the church look like? I think it would look like this, right? The very faith of Jesus. Maybe this man would see it right here in this place. Did ever Jesus ever fail to show love, did he? Never. Now listen to this, because this is great. Because... 
we can show faith in others, like Jesus showed faith in us. This, the context of this is expelling students from school. And I shared this with the teachers um, at a week of, well, well I guess that was uh, their morning um, devotions. But listen to this, this is, this is so cool. And this really works in your family, with your kids, uh, with your spouse, with your coworkers, with people that have maybe not done right all the time. If we wish to do good to souls, our greatest success will be found in their belief, in our belief and appreciation of them. All right, well, let's, let's break that down. So if they believe that we believe and appreciate them, that will go the longest way. A teenager comes and their dress is too short. Are you gonna just chide them and you know throw them out the door and everything else? I mean, it could be worse, right? And, and things get worse. So say someone makes a really bad mistake in life. Here's how the faith of Jesus might work in that situation. You might say, you know, that wasn't a very good decision, and they probably already know that, <laughs> right? But you know what? I believe this is just a bump in the road for you. This is, you, you went through something, I mean, you know, but I, I believe in you. I believe that you're gonna, you know, you're just gonna do great things. This is just a bump in the road. You're just gonna go straight up from here. I believe in you, and I appreciate you. Well, this tells us our greatest success will be found if they believe that we believe and appreciate them. Respect shown to the struggling human soul is the sure means of the restoration of the self-respect the man has lost. And listen to this, because when you show faith in someone who really, in some cases, doesn't deserve it, you don't know what results might happen from that. You really don't. We just don't know. Listen, our advancing ideas of what he may become is a help we cannot fully appreciate. We cannot ourselves fully appreciate. In other words, when you show faith in someone that maybe doesn't deserve faith, you're, you're doing what God does. He shows the faith, faith of Jesus, right? But that may not be seen until Jesus comes. Many of you have heard the story, and I close now, that uh, Glenn Kuhn tells uh, the incorrigible child. Anybody ever remember that? That would date you, so just leave your hands down. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> but he tells the story of this child, and this child was, whew, I mean, wow, bad news. But as they walked home, the teacher and that student would walk. They, they lived in the, near the same area, said walk nearly side by side. And the student one day asked the teacher, do you think that I could someday be a, a doctor teacher? And the teacher's thinking, oh, I'm not sure you could be, <laughs> I'm not sure you'll get through high school, much less anything else, but didn't say that. He used the faith of Jesus. And he had to say a prayer to get it up, but he said, you know, he says, yeah, yes, I, I, th I think you could be, I think you could be. Well, that just welled up in the little child's heart. And the child thought, well, wow, if someone believes in me and really thinks I can do this, I bet I can do this. 
And so, of course, the story goes, he did become a doctor. He ended up saving someone in the family's life of the teacher. But that just goes to show that is what the church should look like. With the faith of Jesus, his perfect, spotless righteousness woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. If you have any threads of your own in there, it's messed up. But God will give you his perfect, pure robe. And it's those robes and it's his righteousness that will take us all the way to heaven. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the faith of Jesus, for the perfect life and sacrificial death, which are the heart of the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And oh, we're so glad for him today. Father, as we see Babylon falling, we know it it has fallen in some sense and it is falling in another, but we see a political, economic, religious power that is working together. And Lord, we know that this power will continue to work together and that the United States will unfortunately be a big part of that. And yet, Lord, we pray that you hold that off as long as possible. And Lord, protect your people right here from Babylon. Take the Babylon that is within out of us, Lord. We want to be pure and holy for thee, Lord. We can't do it, but that you come, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So please do it for your glory's sake. And may we rejoice in you this day as we know that our redemption has come and indeed it draws near. And so thank you for being our God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.